One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. Well, the EMA approves the continued use of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Its benefits in protecting people from COVID-19 with the associated risks of death and hospitalisation outweigh the possible risks. But what damage has the suspension done to our already struggling vaccine rollout? And can we keep up if we get the increase in supply we're wishing for? Well, joining me in studio to discuss is Minister of State for Special Education and Inclusion, Josefa Madigan and GP Dr Knut Moe. And talk of a green certificate could mean freedom of travel within the EU, potentially by the summer. But details on when we can book those flights very much up in the air. And later, Avian Garrahi on adapting her business and raising young children during lockdown. Get in touch on Twitter or hashtag tonight VMTV. for the very latest on the vaccine. Let's go to Darren McCaffrey of Euronews. Darren, we'll start uh, with AstraZeneca. It was a busy day for announcements uh, across the European Union. The European Medicines Agency were discussing AstraZeneca. What exactly did they have to say? Yeah, indeed. And this all follows, of course, lots of reports from various different countries, including Norway, Denmark, Austria, Germany and Italy over the past week about these concerns that the vaccine was somehow linked uh, to blood clots. What we heard, though, today from the EMA is that after days of investigations, uh, essentially that the vaccine is safe, it is effective and that there is no link uh, to blood clots. They said that they cannot rule out the possibility in a very specific form of blood clots uh, that there might be a link. But they said that it is so extremely rare that essentially people don't really need to worry about it that much. They routinely point out that all medicines have got side effects. You pick up a box of paracetamol, it tells you that in the most extreme circumstances, you could have a negative reaction. But you have to balance that. And this was the key message from the EMA today. You have to balance that against the fact that thousands of people across the EU are dying every day from coronavirus. And this is a vaccine that should help stop people going to hospitals and indeed uh, going on potentially uh, dying. Really interesting, isn't it, that obviously then in the last couple of hours this evening, countries like Germany, Italy, France, Spain and others have now reversed their decisions and will start using that vaccine as of tomorrow. In fact, the French Prime Minister went on TV uh, tonight saying that he was going to get vaccinated with the AstraZeneca jab tomorrow. Boris Johnson, coincidentally, is doing the same in the UK. And I think in retrospect, will countries look back and think, actually invoking the kind of precautionary principle. Was that the right thing to do? Has it done more damage than good? And ultimately, I would suggest is that, you know, today they're following the European Medicines Agency advice, which is 
to continue using this, but they've been ignoring the EMA's advice for the past couple of days because the EMA have consistently said throughout this process that the risk of potential side effects is way, way, way down the pecking order compared to the benefits. And, you know, countries including Ireland have not really listened to that advice. And here in Belgium, they didn't stop using the vaccine. And the Belgian health minister thought it was irresponsible for countries to temporarily pause AstraZeneca because of the damage it could do. In terms of the general uh, vaccine rollout, Ursula von der Leyen was speaking today about the ability of the EU to catch up, she said, with uh, the vaccine rollout in the UK. And we know they are way ahead of us in terms of the number of adults that they've been able to vaccinate at this point. How realistic is that? How did she intend to achieve that? And did she give any kind of timeline? Well, I think the thing that she's focusing on now, and I, I think what everyone has to focus on the, within the EU, because there has been this kind of, uh, you know, this obviously very difficult period over the last couple of months in which essentially AstraZeneca haven't delivered the number of doses that the EU expected. Now, in a couple of weeks' time, hopefully this is all going to change. The expectation is that in the second quarter, so we're talking about April, May, June, uh, that uh, Pfizer is going to deliver 200 million doses. Uh, Moderna is going to uh, uh, add tens of millions of more. AstraZeneca, another 70 million. And also then Johnson & Johnson, which has just been approved by the EMA, comes on board. So the expectation is that, yes, it's been difficult. I mean, it's not been great, but it's not been terrible. I do think the, e the EU is almost playing into this narrative uh, that the entire thing has been you know, a whole mess when it when it hasn't really been. It's not been great, um, and so I think that sort be of threat, uh, Darren, or was it a warning to the yeah. UK that unless they start exporting over to the EU some of their vaccines, the EU is going to look at potentially stopping vaccines being exported to the UK? Is that a reflection of Ursula von der Leyen coming under pressure from member states, or do you think that is a genuine warning, a genuine threat, and she will follow through? I, don't, I happen to think it's probably, in all honesty, a bit of political bluster that she's trying to deflect the political pressure that she's under from member states um, onto the UK. And that's understandable. And the EU's position in all of this is entirely understandable. I mean, they are frustrated that they have not had the number of vaccines that they wanted. But at the same time, do they really want to get into a vaccine war with Britain how good is that going to reflect on them? Could they even do it with suggestions today that actually part of the vaccines that go into the Pfizer jab, some of those raw materials come from the UK? So the UK kind of reciprocated. It could mean no vaccines at all. And ultimately, as I continue to point out, their beef is with AstraZeneca. But in the end, if they did put an export ban, it would probably affect Pfizer vaccines going to the UK. So I think in the end... She's under pressure from national governments because of the procurement process. And she's kind of trying to deflect some of that away. Will she go through with an export ban? I think it's really unlikely. I wouldn't say it's impossible, but I think it's unlikely. But at the same time, national governments have to also face criticism too. France and Germany have got millions of doses sitting in refrigerators they have not used. The EU just, Commission, in my opinion, will be better telling them to, to use the vaccines they've got. Very, very briefly, Darren, just uh, running out of time here, um, concerning data coming from the EU today, and this is the backdrop, I suppose, to everything Ursula von der Leyen was saying, uh, some countries, it appears, experiencing a real third wave 
Yeah, it's got really bad. And you're right, that does add to the narrative. Uh, Germany, for example, today reported its highest caseload for two months. Uh, France tonight, the Prime Minister is saying that the entire Paris region and many regions in northern France are going to go into a four-week lockdown um, as of midnight uh, tomorrow night. In Poland, they're experiencing record numbers of COVID uh, cases. And even here in Belgium, which has managed actually things pretty well since a terrible second wave in October, has now seen cases increases, the same number of cases as the UK, only with a fraction of the population. The government is meeting tomorrow to decide on new uh, restrictions. A reminder that, you know, for Britain and Ireland, uh, hopefully they've got through the worst of it and they're going to turn the corner. But for parts of Europe, things are pretty desperate, as you say, as that third wave it seems to be hitting uh, many parts of, of Western and Central Europe. Adair McCaffrey, lots of information there. So thank you for your time and uh, that update. Well, joining us now is Assistant Professor of Virology in UCD, Gerald Barry. Gerald, just listening to Darren there about the new wave of COVID-19 that does seem to be sweeping across Europe again. Are we here in Ireland at risk of a fourth wave? I think there's no doubt about it. Yeah, I mean, our case numbers are completely plateauing. And, and as is emphasized by NEFET at every press conference, um, if, we, if we continue to go as we're going, um, not only will it plateau, but it'll start to tick back up again. Um, and the challenge really is with this new variant, it's so hard to control. It's effectively like dealing with a, with a new virus. It's about 70% more transmissible. It's about 50% more virulent. Um, and, you know, the kind of things we would have got away with this time last year in terms of mild socialization, we're just not going to get away with this year um, because this virus will take advantage of any little gaps that we leave. So what so is the tipping point, I suppose, Gerald, for viewers at home thinking how much longer are we going to be living, you know, in this level of a lockdown? What point do we need to get in their vaccination, do you think, before we can safely reopen parts of our economy and society? You know, it, it depends what we're aiming for, really. I mean, if we're aiming to get to a point where we have herd immunity, which means that the R number stays below one because enough people are vaccinated, then, you know, you're looking at realistically about 85% of the population uh, being vaccinated. And so at the rate we're vaccinating people, that's probably the end of the summer or early, early autumn even. So, Jared, um, if you were in charge, you wouldn't be easing the restrictions any more than what we're currently living with before we hit that point. Again, it depends what you want. See, it's it's difficult to predict, I suppose, because coming into the summer, potentially more outdoor socialization could be beneficial and, and might reduce the potential of spread. So you could look at maybe easing outdoor events or not events, but sporting activities, maybe training for younger kids, for example, outdoors and um, that kind of interaction. But realistically, with the numbers the way they are at the moment, um, if you start to ease uh, in any way, particularly anything involving indoor activity, um, it's just going to inevitably drive numbers up again. And, you know, as I say, any gap that the virus sees, it will take advantage of it. Um, and it will drive numbers up again and we'll be back exactly where we were back in January. And it's, it's almost, it would completely waste what we've done for the last three months. Which is why so I suppose... we need to maintain pretty much what we're doing. Yeah, which is why I suppose the vaccination is so important, the rollout is so important. And I'm wondering what you make of that threat from Ursula von der Leyen today that she might look at ceasing exports of the vaccine from the EU. 
I think it's such a shame to hear countries uh, like talking about vaccine wars and this kind of like nonsense, to be honest. You know, this should be a collective worldwide effort about vaccinating everyone as quickly as possible. There really shouldn't be nationalism associated with vaccination, because ultimately, while you may vaccinate your own population, you're vulnerable from people outside your country that aren't vaccinated. So there should be an effort to vaccinate everyone equally. Uh, at the same rate, there should be a huge drive to vaccinate uh, continents like Africa um, that are struggling to get access to vaccine. Um, and this idea of, of restricting vaccine and, and effectively going to war with other countries about who gets what um, will only impact everyone eventually. It, it's just self-defeating effectively. All right, we will leave it there. But Dr. Gerald Barry, thank you for taking the time to speak to us this evening. I'm going to go to my panel, start with you, Jacifa. There's lots to get through there. Let's start with the AstraZeneca vaccine. We hear the French president is going to have it in his arm tomorrow. Do you have any idea when we're going to be able to put those vaccines into the arms of Irish people? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, there's good news today. Um, and I think hopefully that will bring some comfort uh, to the Irish people. And I know the National Immunisation Advisory Committee together with the deputy CMO, we're probably going to make an announcement uh, after considering what was said at the press conference today around AstraZeneca. There's been about 218,000 people who have been vaccinated uh, with AstraZeneca in the country. Um, and just to pick up on something that Darren, I think, uh, mentioned earlier on, um, by June, we hope to have 80% uh, of the adult population vaccinated um, and uh, Dr Philip Nolan actually said that so you know I hope at that point it'll be a little bit easier for people. Can you give us a time, a date, do you think it'll be the weekend, do you think it'll be the beginning of next week before those 60,000 AstraZeneca vaccines that are sitting on shelves can start to be administered again? No, I obviously can't do that. You know, I mean, one of the difficulties, I suppose, that Ireland faces as a member state is, is we're, we're in this, you know, EU purchasing agreement, advanced purchasing agreement that we have with the EU, and we're a customer ultimately. So it's based on supply coming in. But, but in terms I, I, of the AstraZeneca that's here, well, that's sitting, that we're waiting yeah, to use? Well, 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 there'll be an announcement tomorrow. Um, I heard uh, Dr Owen DeBarra talking on the radio today, and he was saying that they, they could actually vaccinate up to 500 a day, so 3,000 in a week um, and uh, Dr Mo might know more but I understand that it's quite it's more simple to to administer the AstraZeneca vaccines than some of the other vaccines. So hopefully we'll so, have an announcement so that tomorrow on that. Yeah. Um, doctor I'm just wondering if you feel reassured from what you heard from the EMA but do you think your patients are going to feel reassured or will this increase the sort of vaccine hesitancy that is out there particularly maybe when it comes to AstraZeneca? You know, it's it's interesting. Initially, the hesitancy was around the mRNA vaccines, that they were entirely new vaccines. And and now everybody wants the mRNA vaccine um, when when a speed bump arises with the, with the AstraZeneca. So, uh, you know, these are all new vaccines and we're learning about them all the time. And, and the data is... Is is coming out on a week by week basis, and and based on on emerging data, the the, the EMA had to, had to conduct this review, and they've conducted a review which is is quite definitive in what they've what they've said that it is a safe and effective vaccine. Uh, I think you find the amount of healthcare workers who are getting the vaccine, who maybe perhaps have done a, a deeper dive into into some of these vaccines to discover uh, the concerns and side effects, and and as our, our previous reporter mentioned, no vaccine is uh, is entirely safe. No medication, paracetamol is not entirely safe. So there's always going to be some level of risk, but that risk has to be um, tempered by the benefits have to massively outweigh that. And I think that's been, these vaccines have been shown to be safe
safe and effective. And we see Dr. Colin Henry this evening saying, look, people can't ask for an alternative vaccine. If you're not comfortable with the AstraZeneca, it's back to the back of the queue. Have you had people looking for alternatives? Certainly early on, um, that people were uh, were expressing choice. And um, and I think before the, the, the plans were rolled out in a, in a very clear manner, the, the over 70 uh, population are getting Pfizer and Moderna. And that's going as well as it can be, uh, despite a few little speed bumps with supply and communications to GP. But, but that's the thing, that's what's happening there. In, in terms of the healthcare workers, they're getting AstraZeneca at present, but we have more vaccines. So there's four vaccines approved and, and more coming down the line. So hopefully there will be a choice, but just at the moment, supply is so limited that we have to give, you just have to get what you're given effectively. When do you expect to be able to start uh, administering the AstraZeneca again? So the AstraZeneca isn't actually being administered in general practice at all. At all. At all at the moment. That was when the risks were initially proposed about the over 65s. That has that put paid to that plan, and the and then the plan changed so that Pfizer and Moderna would be exclusively reserved for the over 70 population. So you're not involved in vaccinating this sort of cohort fours are being called in any way. General practice, and to be very clear about this, because general practice is inundated with queries with people who are in very high risk categories asking about this the very high risk at present is solely being done uh, in the hospital setting and the hospitals are contacting the patients directly there may be a roll down the line to, to mop up maybe some of the patients that have not been identified by the hospitals but at the moment general practice is solely looking after the over 70s population uh, Joseph I just want to ask you about the comments from Ursula von der Leyen where she said you know the EU needs to get its fair share we are in the middle of the crisis of a century this sort of threat to the EU UK, we're going to stop exporting to you unless you start exporting back to us. Does the Irish government support that position? Yeah, well, first of all, I don't, I, I, I don't really think it was a threat. I think it, it, it might, and our comments may have been targeted probably at the UK and the US. I think we can accept that. And she talked about reciprocity and she talked about proportionality. Mm. Um, and, you know, the EU, we have free tra- trade, bar- you know, there's no free trade, uh, or sorry, there's no trade barriers, there's open borders. Um, so I think there will be a reluctance in terms of of you know stopping exporting or not wanting exporting coming in either but the eu at the moment exports 40 percent of vaccines um, and i think she's talking about for example proportionality in terms of looking at countries outside of the eu are they reciprocating back in terms of you know the eu has been very transparent about what it does with the vaccines other countries probably less so um, so it's really i think it was good to see the eu proactive actually on this issue particularly after some of the procurement issues that we faced uh, particularly around uh, AstraZeneca um, and other matters. So it was good, I thought, that she had this proactiveness. Um, and, you know, countries are entitled outside the EU to do what they wish. Uh, we can't control that. But we I think can... it's about I think it's about being gener- generous as well and exchanging vaccines. Because so does the UK where, where need to be, be more generous then? Well, the, the EU is particularly generous. No, the UK. And the UK, well, I mean, there's, there's certainly a, an argument around that, but obviously the UK uh, has to look after its own citizens first. Um, and so I suppose it might really just occur, as far as we know, the UK hasn't actually exported any of its vaccines. No, it hasn't, back so, to the EU. Yeah. If the UK has to look after its citizens first, I'm sure there's people watching this evening thinking, well, shouldn't the EU look and after it, its citizens first? And, and that's first. what it's doing. And I think, I suppose, the modus operandi of the EU is to look after each member state, and particularly the weaker member states. And it's doing that. And it distributes, you know, the va- whole vaccine programme strategy is but around distributing the vaccine depending on the level vaccines. of need uh, per each country. Sorry, excuse me. Sorry to cut across you, but you don't think the EU should stop exporting vaccines? No, I don't think they, they should do that. I, I think, you know, she did... The two key words are reciprocity and, and proportionality. And 
And I think uh, it, it gave a symbol or a signal, if you like, to other countries outside the EU that it's it's good that we co you know cooperate together. And if a country does have a surplus, that perhaps it can look at giving those and sharing those uh, vaccines. But you know, to pick up more Canute, uh, Mo said there, uh, Dr. Mo, in terms of other vaccinations and vaccines coming down the line, we are going to have more and more of those as we see. And we've vaccinated already over 617,000 Irish people. Um, so it seems a, a large amount in one way and a small amount in another. But I think if we can just keep going as we are, watch our public health advice on, on a daily basis, well, we will get there. And I know it's really, really difficult for people and really challenging. And, you know, I talk to constituents every day and they're just weary. Um, but just hang on in there because, you know, we are we are getting there slowly but surely. But are we getting there when you look at the figures this evening, Doctor, and we hear what uh, Neffert was saying, look, they are static, they are not going in the direction that we want. And actually, if anything, more and more people are seeking tests, not less. Is that what you're seeing in your practice? That's right. Um, we are seeing, uh, certainly, if we look at the, the GP level data that's being produced by the GP community tracker, which monitors about uh, anywhere up to 200 GPs at level of uh, patient queries each day, we're seeing that the queries are stagnating um, you know, in and around that mark. And that's reflecting the cases there as well and, and in some cases increasing ever so slightly so um, this has not gone away um, this is definitely still out there and all the experts are, are saying that this new variant uh, is really um, causing things to be delayed in terms of uh, the, the the case numbers reducing so it's we are still seeing cases in practice we are still sending people to hospital we I have some patients who are in ICU at the moment with it so it's it's definitely still around are we losing the crowd, Josefa? We have, you know, I know the cases have gone up, um, obviously, over the last uh, number of days, if, if not weeks, but we have made progress since January when they were at 1,000 today, a day, they're now at about 500. So the community transition is actually down 20%. So... I, don't, I think we just need to stick a little bit longer if we can. It's very hard towards the end of any journey, but we are getting there uh, slowly but surely. All right, my thanks to uh, Dr. Knut Moe. Minister Madigan will be staying with us. And after the break, the EU's digital green certificate could open up travel within the EU. But dare we dream of a holiday abroad just yet? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Minister 
Alistair Madigan is still with us and joining to discuss the EU's green certificate and the impact of a much quieter than usual St. Patrick's Day is VP of Digital Content with Lonely Planet, Noreen Hegarty. Noreen, you're very welcome to the programme. You might just explain what's in this EU proposal and how it differs to that, I think, ill-fated green list that the EU had at one stage. I think in fairness, Ciara, the green list came very early in our trajectory with COVID um, and very hard to predict what was going to happen. This is a much more serious proposal from the EU to have a digital passport, so-called, um, whereby if you've been vaccinated, if you've had a clear antigen test or if you've recovered and proof that you've recovered from COVID and the medical advice now, I believe, is you know up to six months you should be protected, that therefore you could travel within the EU. So it's very good news for, for tourism. I mean, 75% uh, of tourism in Ireland is dependent on international travellers, uncertain yet as to how soon this can be rolled out. It's obviously in conjunction with the vaccine as well, um, but it's certainly a little light on the horizon and a little hope for people who've had a really, really tough time and a sector that's on its knees. The pressure seems to be coming from, you know, Greece, Spain, Portugal, from those economies that really, really depend on tourism. But there is resistance in the EU to this, isn't there? Uh, there seems to be some resistance. I mean, it isn't, it isn't um, over the line yet as such. Um, it's certainly a better proposal than the proposals that were out previously, which were various bodies, various airline groups, um, other sectors um, within tourism looking at finding something that they could use. Um, this is something that is, would have the imprimatur of the EU. Um, so therefore, I think it does offer some more security, some more assurance to people. We've got to start preparing for tourism to open up. We still don't have visibility. It's only March 20. 2021. I know you spoke earlier about the vaccine rollout and it's not as quick as we want it to be. We hope that speeds up, but we've got to prepare for the future. The Irish economy is really dependent on tourism. Nine billion euro was generated by tourism in 2019. That's a huge impact on the economy. Uh, you know, there's 260,000 jobs being supported by tourism in Ireland. And domestic tourism simply won't compensate for the loss of international tourists. We hope. There'll be a good staycation season. We're all hoping for really good weather. and We get to leave our five kilometres. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and, and we've got to keep that hope. But the reality is it's not enough to sustain the industry. And this is an industry that has been on its knees. Our, our pubs have serve alcohol only haven't opened in a year and um, restaurants bars hotels self-catering b&b's all dependent on this um, and all waiting for some certainty and some communication that is clear about when they can open again can you give any of that certainty to see for what is the irish government's position going to be in relation to this digital certificate yeah, so um, I, I think Deirdre Clune, uh, the Fine Gael MEP yesterday, was calling for this to be dealt with very quickly um, and uh, that the negotiations would start immediately uh, in relation to it and that it would be prioritised. Um, but I think it's really important that you know each member state, you know, that there's a uniform rollout in relation to this um, because everybody has to be in agreement. There's data protection issues that have to be looked at. The European Parliament have to scrutinise it. Um, and there, you know, we have to make sure that people's fundamental rights um, are protected as well but you know once that is all done um, it'll be rolled out you know and the sooner it's done obviously the better in what the meantime, concerns would the Irish government have about something like this well, I don't think the Irish government has any concerns around it I think I think uh, you know uh, and um, 
and Noreen mentioned about originally, you know, about the, the green list. I mean, I was at Cabinet, or sitting around the table when we dealt with that, and it was, you know, some time ago. It's hard to believe it's a year. So this is, I mean, that was what we worked with at the time, um, and it had its, its advantages and its disadvantages, but I do think this is a much better model. Uh, the fact that you can have a negative test, uh, the fact that you can be, you know, have proved immunity, or that you can prove that you've been vaccinated. But once each EU country has it, it'll be much easier for everybody to travel. So the sooner this is done, the sooner we can get back to travel in the safest way as possible, the better. In the Do meantime, there is things like the tourism business scheme. Uh, there was 55 million that went into that so that if, you know, if, if bodies weren't eligible, for example, for, you know, through Board Folge, um or Folge Ireland or the Chris scheme, they could uh, get grants up to 200,000. But how realistic is it, do you think, for people to start planning uh, a holiday abroad or a holiday into Ireland from abroad this summer, this, let's say, July and August? Because we've never seen this mm. evening, no well, non-essential travel before the end of yeah, June. That's and, our and, advice. And we've said that consistently. Um, and and I, 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 found, I, I find sometimes I'm like a broken record saying that, but no, we're still not recommending uh, non-essential, uh, only essential travel is what we're saying. But as I said earlier, Dr. Philip Nolan is talking about 80% of people being vaccinated by the end of June. So if that's the case, um, it, there should be you know, hope on the horizon that we'll be, we'll be able to book holidays. But obviously I can't give any guarantees at present. Okay. Uh, we are rolling out the vaccination programme you know, and, and the two in tandem together could work very well and we could all be booking summer holidays. It's a challenge overall. Year. I chaired the recovery oversight group and we're monitoring the recovery for Minister Cat Catherine Martin. The visibility is very limited. Yeah. So it's very easy to criticise. We're all medical experts now as well. Mm. Um, you know, I think we really just have to hope and, and you know, stick with it um, and see that things do improve in the next month or so. Well, there's one person who has been keeping a close eye on this announcement. It's travel agent Linda McNamara. Linda, does this talk of a digital green certificate offer your sector a glimmer of hope? Good evening, Kira. Yes, indeed. It's great news for the travel industry. It's finally given us hope at the end of a very, very long, tough year. And the sooner, from our point of view, the sooner it comes into effect, the better. Obviously, at the moment, it's only a proposal for now. Nothing is definite, but it's definitely positive news and suggests travel will definitely uh, resume within 2021 season. Is there an appetite there, Linda, among the public? Yes, Kira, there is. Um, we feel as travel agents, there's huge pent-up demand there. You know, people haven't gotten away in two years. Like 2019, we were um, making our bookings for 2021 season. We ended up cancelling every single booking for 2020. Then we changed a lot of them over for 2021, which was great. So we were saying, yeah, yippee, you know, we've got future business, future bookings going forward. People were really looking forward to their holidays, whether it was in, you know, Costa del Sol or Mallorca. Then suddenly, boom, March came. We should be at our busiest season, January, February and March, making bookings which carry us through the whole year, Kira. We are now in a similar situation. It's like Groundhog Day. We're now cancelling all the holidays or changing them over to 2020. 22. Unfortunately, this year, I just personally, I find people are not really willing to change to 2022. The consumer confidence isn't there yet. We need to get that back. We need to get people back travelling, let them know it's safe to travel. And I think the only way that's going to work for us, Kira, is the vaccinations. But we've heard uh, earlier this evening that, you know, the vaccine rollout is slow. It'll be mid to late summer. Is that too late for your industry? 
For this year, I think yes, we have. You know, we're not going to see summer abroad this year. I mean, reading there from Neffet this evening, they have said there is going to be no international travel before the end of June, and like once the kids go back to school come September, there is no way the families are going to take the children out of school again, Kerry, given that they've been out for so long. So I think really the best we can hope for now is maybe the October break there, the midterm, Christmas, get back to the sun, get back skiing, and then come January, February, March in 2022. That's when we'll see a huge take-up on bookings again. When the skies open up and people can travel safely, I definitely think there is a huge demand going to be there. We're going to be busier than ever, than ever we were. And of course, again, booking with the travel agent, you know, your government license fully bonded, your money is safe, we're secure, we offer professional service. And like all of the travel agents in the country, We've survived up to now. We do need support. We're pleading with the government to look upon us as sector-specific rather than putting us in with the aviation and the tourism industry. We need the help, and we're so grateful for the CRSS, which has kept us going. We only get it in level five, and we are pleading with the government, the um, IATA, the Irish Travel Agents Association. They're in constant meetings with government ministers, and hopefully that will come through for us, and that will keep us going. Because unfortunately, the way our, the dynamic of our business carries, travel agents don't actually get any commission from their bookings until the customers travel. So any customers that we had changed from 2020 over to 2021, now we're in a situation where they're not really willing to change, which you can understand because, I mean, the customers, um, their circumstances have obviously changed. There could be job losses. There's other outlays in their income. So therefore, we're still in a refunding situation, which means we have zero income. That's three years in a row that we've been operating on zero income. But yeah, we're positive. Linda, sorry to cut across you there, but I'm just conscious of time. I suppose for your industry, what you need now, if you feel there is an appetite there, is some sort of a timeline, some clarity from the government yes. as to when people might be able to travel. Yes, 100%. We need a roadmap. Like, we look at our fellow colleagues in the UK and the amount of business that has been generated because people now know when they can travel. The UK are ready to open in May. Greece, Cyprus, Turkey, Portugal, Spain, they're ready to welcome the visitors back. Unfortunately, our rollout for the vaccination is that little bit behind the UK and Northern Ireland. But once, you know, once we're told, OK, September, yes, we can travel, I definitely think it's going to just change, change the whole dynamics for us. All right. Uh, thanks so much for your time this evening and take care, Linda. Thank you, Kira. So Linda seems to be writing off sort of June, July and August. You don't necessarily do that, Maureen, do you? I think there was hope that quarter one this year might see a reopening. The quarter two, St. Patrick's Day, that didn't happen. Easter is not going to happen. I think it's still very difficult in March to identify where we're going to be. The vaccine rollout is speeding up. When I first checked, I was in February 2022 for my vaccination. I'm back to September or so this year. So, you know, I'm hoping that that will move back further again. Um, so I think it is still very difficult to call it. I would not like to write off 2021 at this point. And I think the tourism sector would not like to write it off yet. And you think that when it is allowed that people will book very quickly, people don't need weeks of planning for this? All of the research, all of the international surveys, and with my other hat on in Lonely Planet and we operate globally, 
all, all of the research tells us that there is a massive pent-up demand. There will be huge consumer demand for travel when this is over. People have been stuck indoors. People who have kept their jobs and kept their incomes have managed to keep money aside. Um, and they seem very intent on doing those bucket list trips and not waiting anymore. Oh, um, we'll be saying no, no to nothing if we possibly yeah, can. Yeah. Josefa, she's asking for a roadmap there. Yeah. When do you think the travel agency will have that roadmap? Will it be April? Will it be May? I can't say that, unfortunately. I mean, I do think there's a very, very positive boost for the tourism sector, though, and, and for everybody. Um, and it's important to say about the certificate as well that it's only EMA-approved vaccinations. Mm -hmm. So obviously Sputnik and those type of ones that, are, that aren't approved by the EMA. I, I can't give a roadmap. A cabinet will decide that ultimately. Um, but, you know, maybe we shouldn't rule out 2021 yet. At the moment, the advice uh, is, is not to book um, uh, non-essential travel, and that, that stands. But I think this is, this is hope, um, and there is hope definitely for next. Okay, I just want to ask you very briefly because you were on the airwaves all day today, Josefa, about uh, gender neutral language. You were talking about, you know, using chairperson as opposed to chairman. There was a lot of discussion today about the Kerryman newspaper that should be changed to the Kerry people. Um, I think they've made it quite clear this evening that's definitely not going to happen. And your cabinet colleague, uh, Norma Foley, came out this evening and said, tradition is in the name. She supports the Kerry man and it's not going to change its name. Yeah. Well, as you know, in a lot of these discussions, it was never about the Kerry man. There was one line at the end of a, a, an opinion article that I wrote uh, for the Irish Mirror. But, you know, I, I'm happy that we're, we're talking about it. You know, I've done my job. If I've shone a spotlight on, on gendered uh, language, I've talked about it extensively in relation to the Constitution and how it has adversely affected women. Um, I, I do think that there will be a world uh, where we do have words that encompass both uh, genders. Um, so, you know, I would like to see that in terms of using chairperson more often. And because it's very important for young girls when they're looking at jobs and positions that they don't, you know, take themselves out of the equation simply because they haven't seen a woman in that position. So, you know, it's good that we're having this debate. So we're not going to see the Kerry people in 2021, but maybe 2030, you think? That's that's up to them. That's up to them. All right, we'll leave it there. But uh, my thanks to Josephine Madigan and to Noreen Hegarty. And after the break, Evan Garrahy on keeping going during lockdown and psychotherapist Joanna Fortune on isolation and how it is affecting everyone. joined in studio by psychotherapist Joanna Fortune. But first, I'd like to go to co-founder of beallwellness.ie, Avian Garrahy. Avian, good evening. Lovely to speak to you as always. Obviously, you set up the business. It was a live events business, but there hasn't been a live event, I think, in nearly a year. So you had to pivot the business completely, move it online. Has it changed it? Good evening, Kira. Great to chat. Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, uh, Bio Wellness existed primarily in the live event space, and we went from a planned season of sold out events for women across the country to subsequently cancelling all events um, and rethinking our entire business model. You know, that it had essentially fallen off a cliff, but rethink we did. And luckily, um, you know, we had always been quite active online. It was where we did the majority of our marketing and, um, you know, and our brand awareness. And I suppose we had an 
engaged audience there um, from from the get go. And so for us, it was just about taking our message, bringing it, you know, onto the online space, and and um, and hoping that I guess our audience would 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 follow and engage. And so we went from you know live Instagram um, uh, series to podcasts to virtual events to access to weekly content, classes, seminars for subscribed members, and then um, developing and expanding our Bio Sleep Well product range, which kind of allowed people to enjoy moments of self-care in, in the home. And that was what has essentially kept the ship afloat, I suppose, Kira, and kept things going over the past 12 months. Because you, I suppose, are probably like so many people who use Bio Wellness. You're a mum, you have two very young kids, you have a business, you're under pressure, you're in lockdown. How has it affected you personally, Avine? I think, you know, now more than ever, Kira, we've seen, uh, you know, a wellness movement across Ireland over the past few years, which has been fantastic. Um, but never have we been as tested as we have been over the past 12 months. And uh, as I said, I think, you know, there has been a need for it now more than ever. Um, and I think for the most part, the thing we've missed most is connection. Um, and so there's been a huge demand for a whole host of different ways that people can feel more connected, connected to themselves you know, with mindfulness and yoga and meditation and grounding exercises connected to nature, to Mother Earth um, and all of the, the healing properties and, and the therapy that that brings. And then connection with friends and family and community and that sense of togetherness, you know, and being part of something. Um, so we, we, we've done everything. We've had paint and sip evenings. We've had bioenergy healing. We've had cooking demos. Um, it's all happened online and people have really responded to it because I guess it's, it's, it's that design desire, that innate desire to feel part of something, be it a hobby group or, um, you know, or a, a class online or a lifestyle platform, whatever it may be. You would have had, uh, Avian, I know you're very close to your sisters. I know you're very, very close to your parents. You would have had a great support network around you. I know you live in the west of Ireland and they're on the east coast, but still you could travel up and see them. That's all been taken away from you, I presume. How has that affected you? Yeah, yeah, it has. In some ways, I have been incredibly grateful for what the last 12 months has has given me and taught me. Um, my my girls are of an age where they have been completely oblivious to all of this, all the world's problems, and they've been a great distraction. And uh, they're at an age also where they're quite demanding of my attention. I've been forced to give it. But luckily, I have the time. We've been forced to slow down and stay put. And, you know, we've had these beautiful quality moments and, and bonding moments that I wonder, would we have had? or would we have allowed ourselves the time um, before all of this? In saying that, it has been a challenge. Kira, you know, you know, smallies uh, can be full on. Um, I, I miss the support of family and friends, absolutely. And I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, first timers, first time parents that, you know, rely so heavily on, on that support, whether it's prenatal or antenatal classes or, you know, support groups with other parents or just, you know, a dig out from mom, you know, uh, from granny and, uh, and just advise from friends, all of that. It can be a very isolating time and quite a lonely time for new parents who are finding their feet. Um, I know my own sister had a baby, Sean, you know, during lockdown, and it was a strange experience. It was a different experience to the one that, that I had had with the girls. So, um, you know, you know, things are, are slightly different. And for first timers, going to scans and all of that, doing all that alone, um, it's, it's, it's strange it's and it's a challenge. And we've tried to fill that void at Bio. We have a, a Bio baby event uh, coming up next week. 
week. We've had a few of them over the past 12 months to try and uh, and help people, you know, so we have a whole host of experts um, oh, nice. sharing their, their knowledge and expertise on that. So, yeah, it, it's um, it's 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 a strange time. Absolutely. And I'm yes. looking forward to, to the reunions. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you are. Me too. As always, uh, even Gary, lovely to speak to you and, and to take care. Um, Joanna, I think it's fair to say, look at this lockdown has affected everybody uh, in some way, but some groups it has affected in a more pronounced way than others. Avian there mentioning, you know, young parents, uh, first time mothers, yeah. but also young people, single people living by themselves. I mean, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? It really does. And, you know, very slow to say that one group's mental health needs or well-being needs are, you know, over and above anyone else's. But we are particularly concerned about young adults. We know from all of the research being gathered that they are particularly affected and most especially young adults who were already carrying a mental health vulnerability even before the pandemic. Add on to that the pandemic experience, traumatic experiences, loneliness associated with social isolation and then the disruption to both formal, be that your therapy appointments, your mental health reviews in person and your informal supports, your peer group, your extended family, your sports, your activities, your school. That has all had a profound effect and it's something that we are significantly concerned about. In terms of how it manifests itself, how does it manifest itself physically in people? Well, we're seeing physical, but also cognitive and emotional disturbance. It has a global effect on us, and we all will manifest um, these symptoms overtly in very different ways, depending on what way it's impacting us. But we're looking at everything from, you know, appetite disruption, sleep disruption, um, you know, ruminating thoughts, uh, returned behaviours that maybe you haven't engaged in previously, over-relying on food or alcohol or other substances as a way of balancing out, you know, over-exercising, not exercising enough, it can really manifest in a myriad of ways. But what we would say is if you are noticing a significant change in your lifestyle and how you typically live, and it's something that's having a pervasive impact on your life, pay attention to that. But I'd say everybody watching this evening yeah. is saying, yeah, I have noticed a significant change in my lifestyle and how I I'm able to live my life. Absolutely. And how that's going to though affect us in a pervasive way is where it's different. So what we're looking at, especially with young adults at the moment, bear in mind not all of them have even returned to school yet. You know, some of them have, but a huge amount of them have not. I would be saying that when we see young adults return to formal education structure, we may well see an initial decrease in some of those behaviours, their return to routine and predictability, their teachers, their peer group. But what I would caution against is a rapid return to academic academic pressure. I would much rather that as a society, be that our schools and with direction from government, certainly that we encourage well-being as a priority in returning our young people. And I'm talking about schools, but actually we should include in that young adults who are entering into third level institutions as well. Building up people's resilience again. Uh, 100%. And you know, the government have announced a fund of 10 million euros towards mental health services. They have not stated how much of that is going to be specifically ring-fenced for young adult mental health. And I would really hope that we will see a resilience fund that will at least balance things across schools, giving equal access to mental health resources within school communities. What about those, Joanne, like Avian, who are cut off from their wider family? You know, that family aren't within the five or you know they don't have to make a journey to them it's not essential travel you're in a different county you haven't seen your mum your dad your siblings you know what can those people do 
I know. I think it's about trying to reach out to form a new network within your five kilometre as best you can. You know, again, bearing Lock in mind about the store. mixing. Well, just trying to kind of be aware, go out for walks, do the hello, how are you, making eye contact with people. I think that's never been more important. Actually, it sounds a bit twee and I don't mean to be dismissive. Actually, those person to person contacts matter because families like Avians, you know, that are relying heavily, I assume, on technology to stay connected. And we've seen that technology is so helpful in that regard. But we're also seeing one year in that it is a great short-term solution it is not a long-term solution and it cannot be a substitute for in-person intersubjective relational connection and there was just one um, study I saw today 70% of adults saying that they can no longer differentiate between Monday to Friday and the weekend every day feels the same what can you try to do do to punctuate working week with weekends. I know. I think I might be in that 70%. I have I to admit. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, what I certainly find really helpful is I've returned to a paper diary so I can physically see what day is it and trying to anchor myself in what is what are my tasks today? What am I supposed to do? I also think having a calendar, something visual, maybe that's because I'm quite a visual learner, so I benefit from that. But having something that you can visually say, this is the day it is, this is where we are, this is what we have ahead of us today putting some structure in because structure brings predictability and brings that reassurance that we all badly need at the moment. We absolutely do. Great advice there as always, Joanna thank Fortune. You. Thank you for your time and my thanks to all of my guests who joined me here this evening. The next news bulletin will be tomorrow morning on Ireland AM. But for now, good night and do stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.